You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. That was awesome, man. I'm still got... I still got chill bumps going here. It's exciting. Thank you, John. And David took Max to the nursery or to Children's Church, one or the other. And we'll thank John for giving, along with Sarah, life to such a wonderful young man. And I know that it's a joy to your lives to see your sons walking in the truth. And we are so grateful to have Wendy and David and Max in our church. This has been a wild week, hasn't it? It's been a wild week on the church level because we had one of the better weeks we've ever had in this church in terms of God's visiting our church. We are still sorting out. We're having a recount. (laughs) There's going to be a hand count done after church. You know, pastors have a a tendency to inflate the numbers, but we had approximately 20 people, most of whom were adults, who gave their lives to Christ when John Randalls was here. Wow, that was exciting, wasn't it? That was exciting. Praise the Lord. Great. And uh, just when we thought it couldn't get any better, it got better. And uh, are any of you a little drained as a result of the week, a little worn out? I mean, There's something which happens when God visits people in power. There is a sense of being energized, but at the same time, there's a sense when that's over, there's a sense in which we tend to get a little bit drained. I used to call it camp lag. When I'd come back from a camp and the kids were real high, having been on a mountaintop experience with the Lord and was genuine, there was a tendency for a little letdown. I think about another man who had a mountaintop high. His name was Elijah. And Elijah encountered by himself, so he thought. He thought he was the only follower of the one true God. And he encountered the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And he single-handedly killed 450 prophets of Baal. Imagine that. He took on all of them and he defeated them in the power of the Lord. And then, in faith, he began to expect God to bring rain where there had been drought for three and a half years. Three and a half years. And he asked his servant, do you see a cloud as he looked out over the Mediterranean Sea from the top of Mount Carmel? And and the servant said, no, I don't. And then he got down, he stooped down, and he put his hands in his face, and he began to pray again. He said, do you still not see a cloud? And he looked up that time, he says, I see a cloud, but it's a very small cloud. It's about the size of a man's hand. And from the size of that small cloud came an incredibly refreshing rain to Israel, and the drought was broken. That was a high point in his life. And then he outran Ahab, the king, who had witnessed all this on Mount Carmel, all the way to Samaria. Imagine a man outrunning a bunch of horses for many, many miles. He did all that. Tremendous. Do you know what happened to him after that great mountaintop experience? The bottom fell out, emotionally at least. Because a woman named Jezebel, who was the wife of Ahab, said to this man of God, Elijah, I'm going to get you, boy. 
Do you know what he did? He turned tail and he ran, just like any good man would do. And when he'd gotten as far away as his legs could take him, we are told that he found some shade under a juniper tree, and he was just feeling so sorry for himself, and worn out, he fell asleep. And then at some time in the future, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And then he wished that he could die. Imagine that. He wished that he could actually die, and then he fell asleep again, and the angel awoke him later and fed him again. Now, what does that tell us? When we've had a mountaintop experience, don't be surprised if there's a letdown of sorts. We don't, we don't invite that, but if there happens to be a bit of a letdown in your life, on the feeling level, on the feeling plane, don't be surprised. But remember what Joseph said. He said, I, I sense the presence of the Lord is in this place. Do you know whether you or I sense it this morning, the presence of the Lord is in this place? Because his presence is independent of my feelings and your feelings. In fact, just a chapter over from the chapter which contains this great story of how Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal, the people of Syria had attacked Israel and they had been beaten by an inferior force. Israel was inferior to the forces of Syria. So the next year, the Syrians said, we know why they beat us. They beat us because their God is not a God of the plains, but a God of the mountains. And this is what the man of God said, probably Elijah. Listen to what he said to the king of Israel as that second battle was nearing. Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel, the valleys, Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Yes, our God is a God of the mountaintops, but he's also a God of the valleys too. Remember what Jacob said when he awoke after having a dream in Bethel? And he had this dream of angels ascending and descending on a ladder. We sing the old spiritual, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. That's where it finds its roots in the 28th chapter. In the 16th verse of Genesis, this is what he said when he awoke and he rubbed the sleep out of his eyes. He said, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Wherever you and I go on the planet Earth or out into the universe, guess who's there? Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy, thy presence? If I ascend into the heavens, thou art there. If I descend into the depths of Sheol, behold, thou art there. Wherever you and I are, whether it's on the mountaintop or on the valley or somewhere in between, God is there. Let us understand that as we walk in a fresh filling, anointing of the Spirit, fresh visitation of the Spirit of God, that if that feeling recedes a bit, don't despair because the Lord is with us. He's in us and He'll be with us. Now that's not my sermon, believe it or not, today. But I wanted to share that with you because I sensed that the Lord wanted me to share that with you. And I want to share one more thing with you too about what's happened this week with the election. I want to refer you to Psalm 75, verses 5 and 6. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. But the Bible says, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. Now we don't know who the next president of the United States is going to be. But what we can be sure of is that God is in control of all of that. 
I have wasted way too much time this week fretting over that. I just confess it and get it over with this morning. It was not until yesterday that I finally just let go of it and said, Lord, you're in charge. I don't know why I've gotten so tied up in this election. You're in charge of this, and I'm going to trust you. God's on his throne. And whether Al Gore is our next president or George W. Bush is our next president, God's in control. These men can't save us. These men cannot save our country. Do you know who is capable of saving our country? God, and guess who he's going to do it through if it's going to get saved? Through people like you and me. The transformation of our social order will not be at the hands of any politician, but it will be at the hand of God working through people like us. Like people who are reported in the book of Acts, the 17th chapter. Please turn there. The 17th chapter of Acts says, beginning with verse 1, as we continue our study of the book of Acts, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they had, did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. Now, the, I love the way the King James Version translates the last part of verse 6. These men who have turned the world upside down. Do you know what the truth of the matter is? They actually turned the world right side up. Eden was a perfect place. And when Adam and Eve sinned, everything got turned upside down. And here we see Paul and Silas being used by God to write that which was wrong to set things in a proper perspective. They turn the world upside down. Verse 7, And Jesus has welcomed them, and they all act, con Jason rather, has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. What does this passage of Scripture teach us regarding the characteristics of people who shake the world up, who are used by God to turn the world, if you will, 
right side up. The first thing that surfaces in this passage of Scripture is that people who turn the world right side up are courageous people. Let's look again at verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis, which, by the way, was about 37 miles from Philippi. They'd just been run out on a rail from Philippi, as you remember, from two weeks ago. And they came to Amphipolis. Amphipolis was a city that was superior in numbers and also influence to Philippi. But they didn't stop there. They went on to Apollonia. Apollonia was another 30 miles journey, and they evidently made this journey in increments of 37, 30, and then finally 33 miles on to Thessalonica. Apollonia was bypassed, but when they came to Thessalonica, there was a synagogue of the Jews, and verse 2 says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them. This shows incredible courage on the part of the Apostle Paul, who had just run him out on a rail. It was people who'd run him out on a rail throughout. If you study the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, what you will see is the Jews were always agitated, at least some of them were, at the message which he had preached. And so they ran him out. He had been stoned, actually, and left for dead in one particular situation. Yet he was a man who kept going forward. He reminds me of another man in history, David Livingston. David Livingston was the man who was used by God in the modern era to open up the continent of Africa to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was asked one time, where are you prepared to go next? And he says, I'm prepared to go anywhere as long as it is forward. And that was the motto of the Apostle Paul. In the book of Philippians, he said, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, whether it was good or bad, and pressing toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So he was a man of incredible courage. And he was about the business, it seems always, of encouraging other people. For instance, Timothy, probably his closest spiritual offspring, he writes to him in the book of 2 Timothy, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control. Do you know that applies to us today? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of courage. Let me state the obvious. You and I will never be used to turn the world upside right to the right way it's supposed to be unless we have the courage of God in us. Now, if you know Jesus Christ, it's at least there in seed form because the Spirit of God is there, which raises a very important question. How do we cultivate that seed so that it bears fruit in our lives? Well, the way we cultivate that seed is by faith. In the book of Psalms, David writes, When I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? That is wonderful. We should embrace that as our motto. What is the worst thing that a human being could do to you and me as Christians from his perspective or her perspective? The very worst thing that they could do to us would be to kill us. But what does the Apostle Paul say also in the book of Philippians? He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. So the very thing that we would consider and maybe the world would consider the worst thing which could happen to us is the very best thing in terms of eternity will be with the Lord in heaven. So this should in itself eliminate our fears. As we trust the Lord, our fear grows in direct, our courage rather grows in direct proportion 
to our faith in the Lord. Now, how does faith come? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God or the Word of Christ. So how are you going to develop courage to overcome the fears that plague you? You and I can only develop them as we immerse ourselves in God's Word. As we listen to the Word of God. I cannot tell you how many times when I was cowering, as it were, in an emotional corner, and the devil had pinned me into that corner, and I did exactly what Jesus Christ did when he was confronted with the devil in the wilderness. I began to quote Scripture. And do you know, it's incredible how that pall of fear just lifted and I came out fighting against the evil one, the Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Do you realize that all the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6 has to do with the front of an individual? It didn't cover the backside. When you and I turn our backside to the devil, we're going to get beat. But if we face him and resist him, not in our own power, because Paul introduces the section on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 by saying, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. He says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and who is in us. We sang it earlier, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is in us, therefore we can overcome any assault that the enemy might raise up against us in the area of fear and be sure that he likes to try to strike fear in the hearts of God's people. In order for us to turn the world right side up, we must be people who demonstrate courage. And then we need to couple courage with content in what we have to share with people. Well, let's look at the second part of verse 2. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now the word translated reasoned is the very word from which we get our English word dialogue. Normally when a person preaches, you don't get much dialogue, especially in white churches. If we were an African-American congregation today, there'd be a lot of dialogue going on today. Okay, all right, I like that. I like that. I like that. You don't have to do it again, that's enough. You filled your quota. It's good. But the word translated reasoned here is the word from which our English word dialogue can, is derived. And originally, it simply meant to talk or to converse with someone. Then it came to mean, and this is probably the meaning here, to discuss by way of question and answer. So the Apostle Paul entered into a dialogue with these people in the synagogue and he would say something and they would speak back to him and he would answer their questions. Then he would say some more and they would ask questions and there was this interaction which took place. This is the best kind of presentation of the gospel, by the way. Not a monologue, but a dialogue, an interchange between a person who has the good news of Jesus Christ with a seeker after the good news of Jesus Christ. And we should never be afraid of the questions which unbelieving people or pre-believing people ask us. There is an answer. Notice where he found the answers. Where did Paul find the answers? He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are very reliable documents. In fact, let me just give you an illustration of the reliability of the Bible from this particular passage of Scripture. Later in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see how Jason and some of the brethren in verse 6 
were brought before the city authorities. Now, the term translated city authorities is a technical term. It's the word as it would sound in Greek. If I were to speak it in Greek, it would sound like this, polytarch. That's the way it sounds. You can hear politics in that word. Do you realize this is the only place in ancient literature that this word is used? So the higher critics of the Bible, people who say they're Christians but would like to undermine our belief in the trustworthiness of Scripture, for centuries said, until late last century, they said this is evidence that Paul was not an accurate historian. There, I mean, Luke was not. Therefore, the book of Acts is not an accurate document. But guess what archaeologists have found in the last quarter of last century? When they have dug up ancient Thessalonica, they have found not one, not two, but 16 inscriptions chiseled in the rocks, one over the main gate leading into the old city of Thessalonica with this word polytarch carved in it. My friend, we have a solid document which we know is the Bible. And we can refer to Scripture, and it, God answers any question anybody has about anything if we just search the Scriptures. Now look at verse 3. Explaining, and this word explaining literally means to place alongside, and, and hold that thought as we look at something here in the latter part of verse 3, and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So get the picture. Paul is in the synagogue. He's entering into dialogue. He's reasoning from the Scriptures, and this is how he did it. He would take the Old Testament prophecies and understand that when this passage of Scripture refers to Scripture, it's only referring to the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at this time. So he would give the Old Testament Scriptures, probably Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, and no telling how many more, which spoke of the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, how Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven. He showed all of that from the Old Testament scriptures, beginning with Moses like Jesus did. Undoubtedly, he moved his way through the scriptures and reasoned with them on three consecutive Sabbath days. And then he would come over here on the other side and he would lay beside or place beside how Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies. One of the things that also verifies for me the validity of the Bible, and one of the things that will help you in witnessing to people, particularly of the Jewish faith, is to show them prophecies in the Old Testament for the Messiah that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It is incredible. Tremendous apologetic for the Scriptures. And when Paul began to speak about Jesus. It created quite a flap. It created quite a furor. The content of his message created a lot of disturbance because the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying outside or perishing outside of the faith of Christ. But it's Wonderful news to us who are being saved. It's true, isn't it? And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross, the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, is a stumbling block to the Jews. And what the word stumbling block literally means, it's a snare. It's like a trap that catches Jews. And this is the reason why. Follow me carefully. Probably one of the places where Paul went was the 21st chapter of Deuteronomy. And in that chapter, the Bible says that any man who is hanged on a tree is cursed. 
Well, any good Jew would have known that. And when someone began to say that this man, Jesus, was crucified and somehow or another he paid for our sins by being crucified, a Jew would stumble over that and still to this day stumbles over that. But what they fail to realize is that God, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf in order that we might be made right with God. So who was it that crucified Jesus? The Jews get a bum rap sometimes. They crucified Jesus. The Roman authorities get the rap. They, and sometimes we say we crucified Jesus, and to an extent all those things are true. But the very, very basic truth about the crucifixion is that God the Father spared not his own son, but actually sent his own son to the cross to die for us. That's important for us to understand. It shows the incredible love of the Lord for us, but it also created problems for these people. Now look at verse 11. Now these, speaking of the Bereans, were more noble-minded. These were Berean Jews. They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness. Last week, when John was here, it was such a blessing to me to be here, to be blessed by that word that he delivered. But you know, as a pastor, what blessed me as much as anything else, probably more, is to see many of you who received with eagerness the word of God. I mean, the front rows were full of people. It was incredible. Something's happened since last Wednesday night. I mean, this place, it was just full of pe people were eager to receive the Word of God. And they examined the Scriptures daily. The word in verse 11, translated examining, was a word which was used elsewhere for judicial investigation. It carries with it the idea of an investigation that was full of integrity and was unbiased. And that was the kind of investigation that they gave to what they were hearing from Paul and Silas as they were preaching to see whether these things were so. Let me encourage you Anytime anybody stands to teach or preach in this place or in your Sunday school classes or wherever you listen on the radio or watch on TV or whatever you read, always with hope that what they're saying is true, compare what they say with what does the Bible say. It doesn't matter how flashy, how eloquent, how articulate some individual may be and how persuasive his powers or her powers may be, if it's not in keeping with the Bible, it's not from God. Now, let me make a statement that here again is an obvious statement. You can have all your content right in what you present. You can have the gospel perfectly right according to Paul, according to Jesus, according to John. You can have all that right. But if you cower in some corner and never share the gospel, then the Word of God will never be distributed. You've got to couple content, proper content, with courage. And let me say the flip side of that. You and I can have all the fervor that we can muster, incredible fervor, but if we have the content wrong, then we're in error. That's how cults got started. Are you aware of that? It's where people were all fired up but they got messed up because they didn't get the proper foundation. In Proverbs 19.2, the Bible says, It is not good to have zeal without knowledge or to be hasty and miss the way. Is it bad to have zeal? Let me ask you that question. By no means. In fact, we need more zeal. We are commanded to be fervent in spirit or zealous in spirit in Romans chapter 12. We need more fervor. We need more zeal. But do we have to just settle for only zeal? 
That's why a week like last week has the potential to fall flat on its face because we could just resort to zeal. But it's not good to have zeal without what? Knowledge. We need to be sure these new believers, some of whom are here today, and we're going to do whatever we can to see that this happens, are properly nurtured so that there is a balance in their lives between zeal and knowledge, courage and content. Now, very quickly, this won't take but a moment, people who set the world right, right side up, are people who have converts to the person of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and the number of the leading women. Now, if you would look down at verse 12 in Berea, many of them therefore believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Notice the word prominent. Why do you suppose that word is used in leading women? Well, because it's an accurate description of what happened. Yesterday, some of the men, I don't know if any man who was in that group is here this morning, but there are about five men and I met with a man from Japan who's been coming to our church. His name is Eddie. And he was in church, and I referred to this. I asked him to stand. And Eddie was a Fulbright scholar when he was a young man, came to the state of Missouri and studied on a Fulbright scholarship. Very intelligent man, very good English speaker. He represents Japanese companies in trying to set liaisons up between potential sites for business in the U.S., and he goes back and trains people who are going to go from those companies to the U.S. in American culture and so forth. And he said something to us yesterday that I found surprising. I shouldn't, but I found it surprising. This is what he said. He said that he is on the brink, he's anticipating converting from Buddhism to Christianity. Amazing. And let me tell you something else he said. This is neat. I couldn't say this in front of his hosts, Donna and Dennis Yecky, but I'm going to say it. If y'all don't know the Yeckies, you need to meet them. He said there, after we had had an hour of witnessing and sharing with him in a very open forum, he said, and as he pointed to Denny, he said, the Bible that I read is sitting across the table from me. Very interesting. And what he went on to say, he said, that another thing that appeals to me about Christianity is that the leading, many of the leading intellectuals in Japan are Christians. Do you know how they became Christians? Many of them are Fulbright scholars who came to the United States. They were the cream of the crop intellectually who came here. And guess what happened? There were some people like Paul and Silas who sought to turn the world right side up to invest their lives in some foreign exchange students to introduce Jesus Christ to them. We're sitting on a potential gold mine of opportunity at UTEP. There's no telling how many nations are represented on that campus. And nobody is doing anything significant as a church. David's doing it, and a few other parachurch ministries are doing it. But we need to team up with David Preston and minister to that campus and reach a lot of people because when we win one of those people and they go back to their homeland, we send a missionary that doesn't cost us a dime. People that are going to be the leaders of their nation. And these leading women had been tired. They were educated women and the leading men in the Greek world. They studied the philosophies of the world that were offered to them, and they found them empty. We have the only message because we have a living Savior whom we can present to people who will receive Christ and it will radically revolutionize their life. T.R. Glover, the great 
Greek scholar of the 18th century was fond of telling the story about a little boy who said that the Bible ends with the book of revolutions. It is true that the Bible is a revolutionary book. And when we teach the scriptures in a non-threatening way, in a winsome way. Do you know the Holy Spirit is winsome? He wins people. He woos people. We don't have to go out and beat people over the head with the Word of God. We just have to let the Spirit of God control us and we love people and we share the gospel with people and watch God do His work. You notice that Paul didn't try to entertain the people in Thessalonica or Berea. We live in an age that craves entertainment and it has a tendency to creep in the church and we have to fight it back all the time. I'm talking about those of us who are in the position of the limelight. We have to fight the temptation to be entertaining. But he just simply presented the gospel. He didn't force them. He didn't try to coerce them because he knows that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. All we have to do is present the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, meaning the dependence on the Spirit, and God does the rest. We're just spectators watching God work. Exactly that was the case. And there will be converts. And here's the last thing. There will be conflict as well. Verses 5 through 9. But the Jews becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason... And Jason was a diaspora Jew. That means he had sometime in the past, someone in his family had been run out or kicked out or chose to go out on business from Jerusalem and settled in the Greek world. And he was given a Greek name, the Jewish equivalent, by the way, of Jason. I was interested to find out this week is Joshua. He probably would have been called Joshua in the context of his home. They were seeking to bring them out to the people, and when they had, did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act a contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. One of the things that was most prized in the Roman Empire was what was called the Pax Romana. Many of you are familiar with this. It means the peace of Rome. And one of the things that the Roman government insisted upon was that there would be no illicit religion. Religio illicita was forbidden. And they were saying, that is, these Jews who were bringing, and by the way, Judaism was recognized by the Roman government as being a, a legitimate religion. But here they're bringing Paul and Silas and saying, or Jason, having looked out for Paul and Silas, they bring Jason, they say, this guy's preaching an illicit religion. He's saying Jesus is king rather than Caesar being king. And it stirred people up. Now look down at verses 13 through 15. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and that was a 300-mile sea journey, by the way, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Is this world ever going to be turned right side up? You felt this week that it was all turned upside down. You know how it's going to be turned right side up? It's when people like you and I trust God enough to use us just like God used Paul 
and Silas. To empower us to be courageous, to empower us to learn so that when we do share with people, we've got an intelligent message, one that stands the test of anybody's argument. It's the finest message anyone has to share. People who will see people converted. And this, I repeat, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I repeat, the transformation of society begins with the transformation of individuals. When we extend ourselves and are used by God to transform, transform individuals, the result will be that this culture will be changed. It's time we quit whining and complaining and crying, quit depending on politicians to rescue this country. God is the only one who can rescue this country, and he wants to do it through people just like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you today. We ask you to empower us. Forgive us, Lord, for trusting in man, the arm of flesh, instead of you. We do pray for this situation that exists in our nation. We pray that truth would prevail, that you would not judge us by putting the wrong man in office, but you put the very man that you want in office, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The time.